Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come together and to glorify you. Lord, I I pray that you would truly do that, which is your goal, to uh, equip the saints for the work of ministry, Lord, that everyone in here would recognize that you have equipped them, gifted them with special gifts, Lord, that they carry in them in power, like, like a loaded gun, God, that your Holy Spirit resides ready in us to do your great works, God. I pray that that would really become clear to us. I pray that the enemy would not uh, be able to discourage people that, that uh, we would not think that we're too old or slow or weak or unequipped to, to do your work, God, but that we would see that your power is made perfect in our weakness. So I pray that you would come and that you would speak to us, that you would equip us, and that you would send us out in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, uh, it was, oh man, just that last song was really good. It's really nice uh, as somebody who does pretty much everything in a foreign language just to be able to uh, to sing a song in in my language, my heart language. And uh, and that's part of what I want to give you guys today is uh, is how to speak to someone in their heart language, how to be a missionary. Because the last time I was here, uh, I heard from several of you that you want to know how to be a uh, missionary in America, how to be a domestic missionary. And as far as I understand, that's something that's needed. I looked up online uh, statistics and uh, uh, Newark is 34.5 or 34.8% religious, which um, yeah is uh, about half of what it is in the town I come from. And uh, actually about 15% less than Germany, 10% less than the Columbus metro area. Um, Newark here is apparently one of the least religious cities around. And uh, I think more and more there is a need for missionaries here. Uh, and that's, that's not just uh, my observation, but I, I think uh, from some, some of the conversations I've had that that is really uh, a truth. I recently talked to the pastor of Family of Faith Church, uh, Josue Santiago. Uh, I knew his father in Cuba. Uh, when we used to take mission trips down to Cuba, and now Cuba is sending missionaries to Newark. So, <laughs> yeah, it's the truth. It's, it's the, the honest-to-God truth. And uh, he told me that there are 15 other former missionaries from across the world currently working in Newark. Yeah, which is, you know, on the one hand, fantastic, because uh, I, I'm personally a fan of missionaries. I think they're pretty cool. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, I think that, that shows us something that we really need to pay attention to, right? That, that really shows us... Uh, something about our culture and something that's been working or maybe not working. And, uh, you know, I love to start off with a story. And uh, this week we got to have a get-together with the Gideons. We were at the Gideons Banquet, which is, you know, it's an amazing organization. They're doing amazing work. And we were there and we were hearing testimonies, of really incredible testimonies of things that God has done in the past and they're making plans for the future. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, they're, they're dressed up nice, and there's nice food, and there's all kinds of stuff going on, and then they, they prayed at the end, and oh, there's also, you know, amazing people singing gospel music, and, and then, you know, there's the amen, and then there's the, the hustle, hurry up, clean up, and then, you know, people hit the door, and, uh, you know, it's all good stuff, um, but uh, my wife and I started up a conversation with our waiter, and uh, he came from a country from the other side of the world, and my wife says, did you get one of these? Uh, pointing to one of the, the Gideon's Bibles that had actually been given to us for for our boys. And uh, he said, no. Would, would you like one? Yes, I would read it. And so she says, oh, well, yeah, here, you can have it, you know. And 
And uh, this guy's from a distant country with a strange, distant language uh, and a different religion and, and everything else. And, and he was coming and going the whole time, bringing us food, coming within six inches of us, you know, serving us the whole time. And yet it's so easy to overlook this kind of person, right? And we're, and we're talking about the great things God has done and, and the things we're believing God to do in the future. And yet it's so easy to miss the person who's literally, whose hand is literally right in front of our face. Right? And I, I don't want to make any accusation. It's just a normal human thing that we, we often, like Jesus said, uh, a prophet is not honored except in his hometown and his own family. Right? It's, it's hardest to honor those who are nearest to us. And sometimes it's easier to think about missions as this distant thing with all those poor children in Africa, those poor black children who are starving. They need Jesus so bad. And it's harder to see the poor children in our own neighborhoods in our own community, those people who are waiting tables on us and probably have incredible stories of their own. I mean, you don't travel to the other side of the world unless something's really motivating you. You know, did, did he have siblings who starved in poverty, who, who died from, from diarrhea, from the, the poverty of his home country? Like, we don't know these stories, and it's so easy to just overlook those things going on around us, those people who, who have deep, deep needs deep hurts to just, in essence, ignore them. Not because we're trying to, but just because it's not natural for us to love others, right? It's, there, there is a natural type of love, but God's love, the agape love, it's not a natural kind of love, but we are not called to live normal lives. We are called to live supernatural lives. We are called to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's always a challenge, even in the midst of an incredible organization. That's something that we, that we always have to, to turn to. How am I really loving my neighbor in this situation? Actually, the word neighbor in Greek, uh, it just means your next one, your nearest one. Am I really loving my nearest one? You know, and there, there are a lot of people who love to go out uh, on mission, you know, take some short-term mission trip to some other country, and yet they fail to love their nearest near one. They fail to love their spouse or their children. And... Uh, yeah, like I said, when I was here last time, I got the impression that you all wanted to know how to be uh, more effective in reaching people in your community. So uh, I hope God will, will help us with that today to, uh, to learn to be domestic missionaries. So I'm just going to call this the making of a missionary. Uh, you know, I guess to, be, uh, to contextualize, who here has seen Mulan? You guys have grandkids? Kids, Mulan? Okay. No, haven't seen Mulan. Okay. Well, there's a song in there. To make a man out of you. So I'm hoping that by the grace of God, we can make missionaries out of you guys. And uh, I, I know a lot of people re- are really sensitive about the language of what we can make or what we can do as Christians, because a lot of people, as soon as you say, let's go make disciples, then they say, no, no, no. It is God who makes disciples. He uses us. We can be used of God to make disciples. But actually, Jesus, he, he, of course, Jesus understands this. And yet he still says, go and make disciples right? Go and do something. Like, don't, don't just say, well, God's going to make the disciples and maybe I'm going to be involved in that. He's like, no, you do it. I will do it through you. That's implied, but go and make disciples. Okay. So don't, if I say something like, I hope to make missionaries out of you. Yes, I understand. It's God who does it, the Holy Spirit working through us. Okay. But that is, that is obvious. That is implied. Um, we'll say it sometimes, but we not, might not say it all the time. Let's not get legalistic here. Yeah. Um, but like I said, 
Last week, uh, 86% of young adults feel that no one believes in them. One in six young people are confused about their, their sexuality or their gender identity. 34.8% of Newark is religious. Uh, I mean, to be quite honest, if spirituality was a war, Christians in Newark are losing, right? And that, like, I'm sorry to say it that way, but I, I did not come to stroke egos, all right? I'm not here to sugarcoat things. I'm here to say it like it is, okay? And, and the fact is, the, yeah, things are not looking good here. And it's easy to blame shift, right? It's easy to say, well, you know, this, this organization, this denomination, these pastors, these people, Washington, Columbus, whatever, it's so easy to shift the blame. But, but something I learned more and more is something called extreme ownership, which is not a term from the Bible, but I think it's a fully biblical term. It's actually been popularized by a guy named Jocko, Jocko Willink. Has anybody heard of Jocko Willink? Nobody. Okay. Well, he's a Navy SEAL. He's a pretty cool guy. And uh, he wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. And it's all about the fact that, that in the Navy SEALs and very effective organizations, they take extreme ownership, which means, let's say, you know, the responsibility is really 50-50 or 70-30 or whatever else. They don't care. If if something bad happens, you take the responsibility on yourself. The, the subordinate says it was my fault and the person in charge says it was my fault that, because we all have fault in it, right? And, and then I think one of the first things we have to do in order to become missionaries is to take ownership of a situation, to say, look, I understand things are not the way they're supposed to be and I see myself also at fault. And, that, and you see that in the intercessory prayers of people in the Bible of of Daniel and of, of, uh, I'm not coming up with the name, but, but definitely Daniel, Nehemiah, that, that they say, um, they include themselves when they're praying about the sins of their fathers. They, they include themselves. They say that we have sinned against you. Even if we don't know of any sin that Daniel ever committed, I'm sure there was some, but we don't know of any sin he ever committed. And yet he talks about guilt as if it's also his own. And the first step in being a missionary is we take ownership because you will take much better care of that which you own. We all know that. We've all seen that, right? That's why people are afraid to rent their houses out because they know people might move in and they're like, it's not my stuff. What do I care? I'll turn the heat up, leave the doors open, make streaks across the wall. I don't care. It's not mine. We know that's the way the world works. And so the first step to be a good missionary is to take ownership. And we see that in the Bible, for example. Let's uh, open our books, our Bibles to Ezekiel, do, 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 Ezekiel 22.30. Ezekiel 22.30. In fact, I'll start in 29. God says here, The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. Well, that's a little bit too familiar to me. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord, the Lord God. So we see here, yeah, they're living in a country that practices oppression committed robbery, have wronged the poor and needy and have oppressed the sojourner, all things that happen here. And he says, I search for a man among them who would build up a wall and stand in the gap before me for the land. So God, God's like, I was looking for an excuse to be gracious. I was looking 
for somebody to just pray for these people so that I would have an excuse to not pour out wrath. Because the whole time, these people are building up wrath before God and that they are, they are wronging each other, they are oppressing each other, that they're committing all these acts of robbery, which, you know, it doesn't mean you have to get stuck at a gunpoint. You know, there are contracts that are made deceitfully so that you get stuck in it and then you end up paying more than you wanted to pay and you can't get out. I mean, I see that as a form of robbery. And if it's really made deceitfully so that you can't see it in reading the contract or it's in print so small you literally can't read it, that seems pretty close to robbery. I mean, we have these kind of things. And they're, you know, just our medical system is such a catastrophe and all the secret cost and everything that's put in there. We are living in a country that is bu- where God's wrath is building. And he says, I looked for somebody, just somebody to stand in front of me and give me an excuse, one good reason not to destroy these people. And I didn't find anybody. He wanted somebody to take ownership. It was not their responsibility, but he still wanted somebody to take that responsibility upon themselves. They're not to blame, and and yet somebody who stands in the gap takes that responsibility upon himself and says, look, this isn't isn't my battle, and yet I'm going to get involved because I think this is the the thing to do that Jesus would do, right? And, And I hope we model that also as, as a family. I mean, we've, we have flown 15,000 miles. It's been over $5,000 so we can be here to serve and encourage you and equip you to be missionaries to your own community, right? I hope that is, that is an incarnation of, of uh, standing in the gap, of being willing to go above and beyond what's necessary, even overextend ourselves in faith to see that, that God's will is done, His work is done, because... Somebody who, who stands in the gap, he, he just says, look, I'm not going to let it happen that my community goes to hell in a handbasket, which is really ironic, come to think of it, in Newark. <laughs> the talk, of, talk about it going to hell in a giant basket. But, <laughs> but I'm glad it's empty because we're not going to let communities go to hell in a handbasket. If people want to go to hell, and they have to go through us right? We, we are going to stand there and say, no, this is wrong. Don't do this. We, we want the will of God to be done here. And in the end, bad pastors are not enough to take a city down. You can't say it was a bad denomination. It was a bad organization. It was bad pastors that have caused Christianity to decline in the city. That alone is not enough reason. If there are people who are really interceding, who are pulling on God's ears and saying, Lord, we need you to do a work here, to send revival, to awaken people through your Holy Spirit, things still happen. We see that in the Bible. Even the right-hand man of, of King Ahab, right? King Ahab is going around killing every Christian, in essence, because they believed in the Messiah, even though it was the Old Testament. You know, they're killing every Christian they could find. And, and uh, his right-hand man has hidden... Uh, what was it, 7,000 people? I think. He, he had hidden tons of people in caves from his own master, right? So even, even in the midst of the reign of King Ahab, the most wicked king that Israel had seen, even his right-hand man was able to save hundreds and thousands, right? So, so there's no excuse to say it was a bad organization, bad leadership. I mean, those things definitely have an effect, but in the end, it's our job to take extreme ownership and say, okay, this is my community, and Lord willing, we're going to do something here. And I might feel like I'm not equipped enough, that I'm not gifted enough, that I'm not able enough, that I'm not strong enough, but, but Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And to be quite honest, those of you who are 
more aged and to be honored with the gray head among us. Uh, you guys have like a super special in. Okay, in missions, we talk about having the foreigner bonus. Like we get to do things that people from the culture don't get to do, especially maybe in like a high culture like Japan, where there are very strict expectations upon how you act in all circumstances. If you come in as a missionary, as an outsider, you can do stuff. Even if you know it's a rule, you can break the rules because it's like, oh, sorry, I'm American. I'm not so familiar here, right? So you get what we call the foreigner bonus. Well, some of you guys have like the pensioner's bonus, all right? Where like some of you, you can just go up and hug anyone you want. Like if, if you, you, you wonderful ladies over 60, you can just hug anyone and nobody can get mad at you. Like that's your pensioner's bonus, right? You can just go up to anyone in the world and just hug them. And they're like, oh, she's cute. Like, <laughs> I can't do that. I get slapped in the face, right? But you guys have like a special bonus or, you know, you can, you can go up and, and ask anybody, uh, if you could pray for them, we, I mean, we're going to get to that. Um, but like, especially like, who doesn't want a grandma praying for them? Like, everybody wants a praying grandma on their side. Like, you guys, you have like a special niche in the society, or just just being that that uh, advisor, that mentor. I mean, we were just talking about sixty eight percent of people don't have anyone who believes in them. You can be that voice that believes in them. I mean, if if you have a middle schooler believing in you, that doesn't really count for much in our our society, unless you're a middle schooler yourself or younger, you know, or if, if I go up to a 45 year old man or maybe like a, a 55 year old man and I'm like, I believe in you. I don't know how much that counts as, but, but having lived to see many days, whoever you believe in, it really counts as something, you know, you have authority with, with, with which you speak. So I just want to encourage you guys. Um, you have more ability than, than what you might think. Yeah, so so taking ownership and, and in the end, just repenting. Like, I think we need to repent for, uh, for not living up to our calling as Christians because God is a missionary God. God sent his own son into the world. Jesus was a missionary. When we say we're Christians, we're supposed to be followers of Jesus. Jesus was a missionary. He left his throne, his kingdom, to be born in a barn and live the lowliest of lives. If he was willing to do this, then when we say we're a Christian, that means we're willing to do this. And if we fail to do this, then we need to repent and tell God that we're sorry for failing to be a missionary, for getting things twisted, for getting things backwards. Right? So God God is the first missionary, and he gives us a mission. So a lot of people get purpose and mission confused. Our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him ever. But we also have a mission, right? The great commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I have commanded you, right? So it's, we, we have a purpose, but we also have a mission. And um, there are professional missionaries, you know, just like they're a professional evangelist. But even though they're a professional evangelist, gifted evangelist, Paul still writes Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, right? So he understands Timothy's probably a teacher type. He has a gift to teach or maybe to pastor. And yet he tells him, do the work of an evangelist. So he's saying, even though this isn't your wheelhouse, this isn't your gifting, because this is just part of who God is, God proclaims good news. That's just part of who God is. So therefore, do the work of an evangelist, even though you're not an evangelist. And I think it's the same thing with missionary 
the, the word we get, or the, it's kind of like missionary in the Bible, is apostle, right? A sent one, right? And, and Jesus was sent. He was an apostle in essence. And, and so um, even though your gifting may not be apostolic, like I would say my gifting is apostolic because I'm a missionary, right? That's, that's my wheelhouse. But even if that's not your wheelhouse, just like doing the work of an evangelist, you still have work to do there right? It might look different than the way that I do it or the way that an evangelist does it, but still you have work to do. Uh, some people put it so simply, either you, uh, either you go down the well or you hold the rope, right? But uh, I think there are also, even if you're one of those people who holds the rope, who gives 30% of his income because he's blessed with good business practices and he has an income, he can give 30%. Even if you're one of those people, I think there are still opportunities every day with the people around you to be light, to, to, to embody the love of Christ, to be incarnate. Yeah, and so that's our, that's our, our third point, to recognize those around us. Yeah, that we take ownership, that we repent, and that we recognize those around us and then live incarnationally. All right, so just like with the, with the Gideon story that I just told, it's so easy to have people around us who are really hurting and yet they put on that smile and we don't notice them, right? Or we just, we're just so used to people serving us at a restaurant, we don't even think about it anymore. Our mind's already somewhere else. And, and like I said, that's totally natural. And yet Jesus is calling us to, to go above and beyond that which is natural. So we, we don't know when we sit down to a restaurant after this if our server is $20,000 in debt because they have a, a child who has special needs and they keep trying to, to give their child everything they need and they're struggling and they keep falling further behind and, and their husband left because everything was difficult and, and here they're just smiling and they're serving. You wouldn't even know because they're putting on such a good show and yet their heart is hurting so bad and it's so easy to just let that person come and go and serve us without even having a second thought about it. But one of the, the best practical things you can do, one of the real nuts and bolts thing that you can do is to just recognize these people. And, or I guess, I guess the real nuts and bolts suggestion would be if you can compliment the people who come into your, uh, into your sphere of influence or, or into contact with you, just give them a compliment and say, is there anything that I can pray for you about? Right? And, and, that is the fastest way to get somebody to open up their heart because a lot of people, even if they're not a Christian, they, they believe, you know what, there, there's something out there. There's some sort of force or power or there's something out there. And if this person has any kind of connection to this powerful force that can get me help, I'm ready for it. And that is one of the fastest ways to have people open up their heart. Just say, hey, is there anything I can pray for you about? But if you say that, you really have to pray for them, right? And you need to to uh, persevere in prayer and follow up. But it, that, that, that brings us back to this abundant life that God wants for us, right? It is, yeah, to go to the restaurant and say, oh, you know, I want to get myself a treat. Like, that's, I guess that's nice. But if you really want to be excited, have some of those kind of connections, right? If you, if you know, okay, I'm going to go to Texas Roadhouse after service and, boy, I wonder how Susan's doing. I've been praying for Susan. Boy, I hope her husband goes on, or her, yeah, her husband gets on parole, and that, uh, that he can stay out of trouble, I'm going to follow up with him, and you go in there, and you use your pensioner bonus, you just throw your arms around her, and give her a big hug, and, you know, hold her hand, and say, how you doing, 
right? That just, that makes a visit so much more exciting when we have those meaningful connections with people. And it's those meaningful connections that bring about meaningful results. A lot of times I think we don't succeed in leading people to the Lord because we don't have those meaningful connections. We have really superficial connections, right? And I don't know how many of you guys have been in construction, but, but you know, if you, if you make a a superficial connection to something, it's not going to hold, right? It's not going to be able to bear any weight. You got to dig down and you've got to make a meaningful connection to something if you want it to, to bear any kind of load. And to become a Christian is a big load to bear. So you've got you to go deep. You've got to make those meaningful connections in order to, to help people um, come to, to meaningful decisions. And, and we want to do this because it's the Jesus way of doing things. But I can also tell you, psychology has recently uh, confirmed that, uh, that this is also the way to be happiest. Um, they did an experiment, and one, one group was instructed to um, treat themselves to something nice, and another group was instructed to treat others, and a third group was, was uh, supposed to do something good for a good organization. And then the, third, the fourth group simply um, was the control group and simply uh, kept track of their daily activities. And uh, the only groups that improved happiness were the pro-social groups, right? Treating yourself didn't actually improve happiness. Treating somebody else to something special, that increased happiness. Or, or doing something for a good organization, giving to charity, that increased happiness. But doing something good for yourself, that didn't make anybody happy. Only, only serving others. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, we don't even need to talk about psychology. What does the Bible say? Right, what's the golden rule? Who here has ho- heard of the golden rule? Okay, treat others like you want to be treated. Right? That's the golden rule. That was one of the first, that was the first Bible verse our daughter learned before she turned two years, years old. It's treat others like you want to be treated. Right? It's, it's the basic premise of the Christian faith. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Super simple. And yet, how often do we fail to live that out? Right? I mean, look, I'm theologically conservative. Yeah? And, and a lot of people, when they, I think a lot of Christian churches that are theologically conservative, they want to know, how do I convince other people of that which I believe, right? How do I convince other people that abortion is wrong? How do I convince other people that um, traditional marriage is the best way? You know, those are good things, but if we're not living it out, if we're not actually loving others, treating others like we would like to be treated, then that's all hot air. Then that's just a clashing gong, banging cymbal. That's not going to bring along anything, what good does it do to say abortion is bad? You shouldn't do it. If you've done it, that was a wrong decision. What good is that if we're not willing to help single mothers or to, to adopt children that would be aborted otherwise? Right? I mean, I have a friend. He went to the abortion clinic with the sign, I will adopt your baby. And that's what he ended up doing. I mean, he didn't have to go out there and say, hey, you guys, this is wrong. You need to stop to save a baby. I think he did. <laughs> he's a little hothead too, but, but he also had the, 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 uh, yeah, the gumption to follow that up with, with true Christian love. And so he's adopted a baby from the abortion clinic. The lady said, I, I already knew it was wrong, but I didn't see any other option. But if you're willing to take my baby, I'll, I'll bring it into this world and you can adopt my baby. Right? It, yeah. So our mission is to live this life of love, right? And, and to make disciples while still holding to the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And, and in this, 
we make these disciples, teaching them to, command, to obey all that uh, Jesus commanded to them. Now, but uh, after all that, we come to the last point, and this is, this is where we get a little bit more into the nuts and bolts about how to uh, successfully be a missionary, um, which is contextualization. And for that, I've brought something. I'm going to need you guys to trust me. Can you trust me for about 30 seconds? Yeah? Okay. All right, like nobody leave the room. I've had people want to leave the room before, okay? But, so just trust me for 30 seconds. Uh, Gerald, can you, can you let it rip? See if it works. I want you guys to be thinking about what you feel when you hear this. What, what does this make you think? Okay, so what do you guys think when you hear that? I want a little participation. What, what, do, you, what do you think when you hear that? You think praise to God? It sounds like Islam. It sounds like Islam. Okay. What else do you guys hear? It sounds Jewish. All right, I'll, I'll let you know it was Arabic. What else do you guys think? Did you? Okay. I don't think it's in there, but that's... <laughs> okay. It, it probably sounds very much like it. Yeah. Uh, do you know the word for truth in Arabic? No? Okay. <laughs> All right. What else did you guys think? Meditating. Okay. Yeah. Yeah? Well, you guys are an open-minded group of people. I'll tell you what. Usually they're talking about how oppressive it sounds how, how uh, dominating, uh, which because it, it is the typical style of Muslims, this typical Arabic style. Um, and so a lot of people make, they, they believe, you know, oh, this is, you know, some Muslim prayer. It sounds a lot like, I don't know if you've heard the calls from the minarets, you know, this typical call to prayer in Islam. Um, and a lot of people describe that as very oppressive and depressing. And, and there is uh, what people call spirit of Islam, which is very suppressing. Um, but that was actually the Lord's Prayer in Arabic. <laughs> yeah, that was the Lord's Prayer. Um, and I, I like to use that just as an example of uh, not everything that seems wrong is wrong. Right? A lot of people hear something like that, especially if, if I set you up to already be thinking in the in the track of Islam, then uh, a lot of people are quick to, to scratch that off and say, well, that's all wrong, even though it's the Lord's Prayer, but we just didn't recognize what it really was. And in, in the same way, there are things that seem wrong that aren't wrong, and there are things that are right, or that seem right that aren't right, right? Like, all roads lead to heaven. Sounds really awesome. You know, like, just like how all roads lead to Rome. Sounds great. Doesn't mean it's true, right? And, uh, and so, as missionaries, we, re- we rely upon something that's called contextualization, which is, in essence, we unclothe the gospel 
from our cultural baggage and then we reclothe it in the appropriate uh, cultural form, right? So in Zegan, we have young people who do rap and hip-hop to the glory of God. Not all their songs are Christian, but uh, they do rap and hip-hop to the glory of God and do, do give God the glory in, in different songs. Or, uh, yeah, there are, there are people in Hawaii who express their faith through hula or uh, other people who express it through metal music. Um, you know, there are different clothes that are being worn, different words that are being used. Uh, and, and we can't really get into the details of that, but I, I want to encourage you guys, um, especially when you realize, okay, what I'm engaging in here is now cross-cultural mission, right? Cr- cross-cultural meaning, for example, the youth right now have a different culture than the one you grew up in. And it's easy to just wring your hands and say, oh, you know, it's so terrible. But that's not going to help anything, right? Solomon says, why do you say the earlier days were better than these days? This question does not come from wisdom, right? So he says, don't say, well, it was all better in the past. It was all better back then. That's not going to accomplish anything. That's not going to help anything. Our goal is to understand, okay, how can I uh, reach the people, yeah, the way they are? Not try to change them to go through the same childhood I went through, which is impossible or something, but just to reach them where they're at, which, which requires a lot of humility to sometimes say, okay, this thing that I think is really cool, like, like I love hymns, but not everyone needs hymns to come to Jesus, right? Or I, I like going to church and wearing a tie. I, in fact, I don't think any of us are wearing ties, but uh, I like some people really, they feel like they got to have that suit jacket to go to church. And yet that's just, that's an example of cultural baggage and and uh, we all have those points, and, and yet no matter how distant th- their culture becomes from ours, uh, there's always a chance. I want to close with a story called Peace Child by Don Richardson. Who's, has anybody heard of Peace Child? Peace Child, it's a really interesting book. Okay, we've got one guy who's heard of it. So Don Richardson was a missionary to Papua New Guinea, and he went to uh, a tribe of people and uh, he discovered with horror and dismay. So, so they're already cannibals and headhunters, right? Which is already it's a tough group of people to be around, especially bring your family to and, and live among, right? But he said, well, Jesus left hev- heaven to come to earth to live among us, to be incarnational, to be one of us so that we can be saved. So I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to go to these cannibalistic headhunters in the middle of nowhere who I think they wore like a piece of rope around their waist for clothing. Like that's a big jump in, in clothing. I, I think he didn't go that far. You know, sometimes if it comes to righteousness, we can't go all the way in cult- uh, contextualization, right? But uh, so he was living among these people and he learned their language and he was preaching the gospel and he was going through the story of Jesus. And then he got to the betrayal of Judas and they started jumping around and hooting and hollering and he did not understand. And eventually he was able to, to, to hear it from them that, that their culture most highly praises betrayal. Betrayal is the highest virtue in their culture. And the longer you can be with someone until you betray them, the better person you are, right? Like if you are able to live with somebody, live and eat and sleep with them for three years and then betray him, ice cold, you are like the the hero of all time in their culture, right? And of course you hear that and you think, these people are lost. Like they, they are irredeemably lost. There's no way you can do anything with these people who think that Judas is the, the hero of the Bible, right? How are you supposed to do anything with that? But he, he just, he stuck it out. He stayed among them. And, and that's a big, big key to, to uh, missionary ministry is just stick it out, stay with it, 
keep enduring, keep trying, keep testing different things, right? And uh, eventually he heard of somebody who like got killed and cannibalized or something. I don't remember exactly what it was, but, but then somebody said, yeah, he should have had a peace child. And he's like, what's a peace child? And they're like, well, if you give your child to a different tribe, then you make peace with them. And as long as that child lives, they cannot attack you. And, uh, and he says, well, what happens if you kill the peace child? And they said, oh, then you're the worst person who's ever lived. If you lay hands on a peace child, then you are the worst person. You deserve to die. And then, so he started to put it together. Oh, I get it. Jesus is God's peace child. He is the one who God gave to establish peace with us so that, so that we would no longer fight against him, but so that he would not have to destroy us. He gives us his peace child, and because he lives eternally now, there, there is no end to this peace between us. And the one who betrayed him, Judas, was guilty of this worst sin because he did not just betray anyone, but he betrayed the peace child of God. And through this, the people in the tribe got saved, and they built the largest unmilled cathedral in the world where they come together, different tribes who who earlier had, had eaten one another, they gave peace children to one another to establish peace in the way that God did. And they came together in unity and built the largest unmilled chapel in the world. So that's the power of the gospel being contextualized. Right? And, and it's hard to find those inroads. It's hard. He had to stick it out for years to figure out how can I show Jesus to these people in a way that they can understand. But God has preserved a piece of himself in every culture in the world so that there's always an inroad. There's always an inroad. We just have to find it. Yeah. So, we want to take ownership, repent and believe, and live incarnationally. And I think if we can follow those steps, I mean, that's not even Missiology 101. That's just the intro to Missiology 101. But I think if we can take those steps, then we can see God begin to do more things around here. In the end, it just comes down to love. That we just love others as ourselves, that we just follow that golden rule that we all talk about. Because in Jewish thinking, um, the Jews were not concerned with what does it mean, rather they were concerned with what does it do. When they had a question, their question was, what does it do? And we've been really focused as Westerners, what does it mean? What does the golden rule mean? What, what if, okay, let's, <laughs> uh, sorry, Francis Chan has an example. He says, um, if I tell my kid to clean his room, and then he goes in his room, and he invites his friend over, and they have a study about cleaning rooms, and they talk about what it would be like to clean their room, and they make a plan for cleaning their room, and yet the room is not clean, he's not going to be happy as a father, right? And we as Westerners, we're really, really good at that, right? We can get together, we can study the Bible, talk about mission, what it would be like if we went on mission, we can even make plans, or we can make a, a meeting to, to do mission, but even, like I said, it's easy to miss the people who are literally in the meeting and we're not, we're not uh, bringing the gospel of Jesus to them. Yeah, we don't want to be like that. The people who lay around the room and talk about what it would be like if I were to clean my room, right? We, we want to be the people who just live on mission, who actually, who actually just do the work of loving God, that we just, then just make disciples. Well, how do I do it? God will show you. Right? We just have to make it our goal. Make disciples. That's our mission. Our purpose is to glorify God. Our mission is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I do it? Well, start with the first step. Thousand mile journey. Just starts with the first step. 
God will show you along the way. We're also, I'm here in contact. The elders are here in contact. If you have a, like if you were actually on the way and you're like, okay, I just asked him if he wants to give his heart to Jesus. He said yes, and I don't know what to do. Great, okay. <laughs> we'll find somebody to help lead you guys the next step of the journey, okay? But it just starts with the decision, I want to be a missionary. I want to make a disciple. Okay. This time really closing. For real this time. Last verse, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Second Corinthians 5.20, it says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's another example of a very short gospel presentation. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God. Right? So you guys are ambassadors. You are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us as we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would truly make this group of people into your ambassadors, into your missionaries, who on your behalf would say, be reconciled to God. Yes, Lord, I thank you that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that you gave Christ Jesus on the cross so that we might have redemption of sins, so we might have forgiveness of sins, so that we might have a new path to walk upon. Lord, that you opened doors that no man could open, that you've opened the gates of heaven to us, Lord. And I pray that we would be fervent in, in resisting those who go astray and, and snatching people from the flames of hell, Lord. And we would not let Newark go to hell in a handbasket, but that we would yeah, persevere in seeking the lost and in making disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.